Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Here at The Next Reel, we've been passionately discussing movies week after week since 2011. That's a lot of movies and a lot of conversation. Sure is, Pete. And to be honest, it's a lot of work, too. But it's work that we love. If you've been enjoying our show, we'd like to remind you that there are ways to support us, even if you're not able to become a member just yet. You might have heard us talk about our new watch page, where we've listed every movie that we've talked about paired with Amazon or Apple links to rent or buy the movie. Now we'd like to introduce you to our Originals page. Let's take a trip down memory lane, Andy. Do you remember what the first film we discussed on The Next Reel was that was an adaptation? Uh, well, let's see. It wasn't, obviously, our Indiana Jones series, because those were all original. Uh, then we did Charlie Kaufman. Uh, oh, of course, it was Adaptation uh, from Susan Orlean's Orchid Thief. Exactly. We have covered quite a few adaptations over the years, and now we're providing a way for our listeners to delve into the original source material. That's right. Just head over to thenextreel.com slash originals, and you can see the list of all the adaptations that we have discussed. From our David Fincher series, featuring The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, The Social Network, Zodiac, Benjamin Button, and Fight Club. To our Paranoia trilogy with The Parallax View and All the President's Men. We have covered a variety of adaptations. Those were some great discussions, especially Fight Club. And let's not forget our baseball series with The Natural and Field of Dreams, adapted from Shoeless Joe. And Up in the Air and Thank You for Smoking. So many memorable conversations. Absolutely. And you know what's exciting? Each purchase you make through our links doesn't cost you any extra, but a percentage goes to support the next reel in our family of shows. You can support us while diving deeper into these fantastic stories, whether it's the paper, audiobook, or Kindle version. We've also included plays and movies. If they were the source, we've put it on there. So what are you waiting for? Head to thenextreel.com slash originals, support the next reel, and get your next great read today. I'm off to reread Fight Club. Now, where did I put my Kindle? I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. I know. I don't know what to. I don't know what to do with myself. Um, yeah, I recorded that part. You you recorded that. Yeah. So so it's on the record. You recorded me saying that I don't know what to do with myself. Mm -hmm. I did. Great. I did that. That's a good start. How's your week? 
Well, it's been a rough one. Yeah, because um, you've been uh, you've been down. You've been you've been ill. I've been ill. I've had um, bronchitis, which hasn't been fun. But I'm on my meds, and I'm slowly healing. I'm not as bad as I was when I spent two days just laying in bed. But um, you know, I'm still far from perfect. You're on your meds. I'm on my meds. Geriatric patient. <laughs> uh, you but you had a chance to watch lots of movies. That's good news, right? Yeah, that's. I guess that's the great thing about being sick is is all I do is just lay there and watch movies. <laughs> so <laughs> it's it's while a curse, it's also a blessing because I I can just sit. Any uh, any big bed. highlights? Any highlights? Well, I watched. I, I tend to watch a lot of crap <laughs> when I'm sick. Um, because it's very easy to kind of nod off and, you know, fall asleep and come back and like half hour later and you don't feel like you've missed much. Yeah. So, you know, I, I watched, you know, I watched the latest Saw movie. I watched, I, I, you know, I haven't seen any of those. Not a one. Yeah, it takes, you know, I, I don't know. It takes a, a certain stomach, I guess, I'm, for watching those films. I'm surprised and, that you are a connoisseur of the Saw films. You know, are we gonna? Or is that gonna I, be on the list? You betcha. <laughs> no, I, I won't. I won't put us through that. <laughs> it would be a little much. I don't know if but, I could do it. Uh, the director and writer slash uh, or co-writer slash star of the first Saw movie rolled through town on their little tour, and I had a chance to interview them um, back and back in the day, and chatted with them about it and it was a really interesting uh it was just interesting talking to them about the film and how they came about it and all that and and i enjoyed the film it had some fun twists and everything and and they've you know the people who've continued the series managed to you know keep you know while not necessarily wholly original stories uh coming at you they they always throw interesting twists in and i mean they're horribly gruesome they really are they're just yeah they're <laughs> awful i've seen clips i've seen certain yeah certain scenes uh never gotten never actually sat down for a whole a whole film yeah the i feel first, i feel okay about that yeah you know there's no reason you need to jump yeah uh jump on them but uh yeah so i saw that i watched airport uh 70 the old uh the old movie with yeah. uh you know the big airport disaster movie those were always fun movies to watch i, I remember i can't watch airport uh it was airport 77 wasn't it 77 i can't remember there was, there was a airport. 70 75 and 77 that's I what it, i can't watch those without also watching the poseidon adventure and towering inferno yeah it was very much that whole they, 70s they go in, in yeah it's a set it's a set What's the one with the blimp that crashes, like terrorists crash it into the football stadium during the game oh, or something? Oh, wow. Uh, Black Sunday. Yeah, I yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, those, you know, good times with all of those. But, I uh, uh, I think I saw better movies than you this weekend. You you did. I think I did. I think I you saw, probably did. I was pleasantly surprised with Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Oh, it was a fantastic movie. I yeah. can't believe, because I was uh, not excited uh, about Planet of the Apes. Uh, I didn't, I wasn't uh, crazy Tim about Burton, it. You're talking about the Tim Burton remake? No, I'm talking about the original uh, really? Planet of the Apes. I was not crazy about that movie. Oh, I love that movie. I'm going to watch it again now that I have seen uh, Rise Of. The, yeah. the Tim Burton one was off the grid. Like that one I don't really even consider an apes movie, right? No, it's, it's not, not good. Other, other than the ape makeup, which was great, but, you know, other yeah. than that, yeah. incredible. But this, this film was really, it was, this, was a, uh, this was a great movie, Rise of, Rise of the uh, Planet of the I quite enjoyed it. We watched, on your recommendation, you said, watch Rise of the Planet <laughs> of the Apes and then watch Contagion. Right. <laughs> and I did. We watched those back to back. Wow. And, and do you like that connection? <laughs> Such a downer. Oh, oh I know. man. It is. That was horrible. But it was, it was, they were both uh, really very good movies. I was surprised at Contagion. You can tell it's kind of an activist film with the number of, uh, number of stars they got in it. Stars on, in, in very small roles. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. But I, I quite enjoyed it. And, um, 
you know, I love I love disease movies. Although I have been walking around with a mask and rubber gloves on for the last <laughs> four days. Uh, and then we did uh, what else did I tell you? We saw um, we did. Uh, oh, I think maybe the best of the bunch. We did uh, Moneyball. Yeah, that was a fantastic movie. Oh, went in with no expectations. Like not even low. I just didn't even really have any thought of what that movie was going to be about. I didn't know. I, I knew roughly that it was about a baseball movie, that it had something to do with statistics. And uh, I, it has literally changed the way I think about my business. Like just oh, yeah? the really? way, the way I think about the nature of, of approaching problems has changed mm-hmm. as a, as an effect of that movie. I was, I was really moved by the message of that movie. I thought they did a really good job. I have since started uh, reading the book and I, I think they did a oh, really nice. good job nice. of bringing the book to, to bear. And uh, just to, to close one final loop, she, she shot in the head and buried, <laughs> and then a fox takes a leak on the grave. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and then she claws her way out with a lighter. Really? It's not, it's not uh, an easy ending. That was... Anyway, so lots of great movies, and uh, I'm, I'm really enjoying... Uh, I have now moved into the uh, girl who kicked the hornet's nest. Excellent. Uh, so fantastic uh, books. I I started watching the girl who played with fire the film. I have not gotten to the uh, tough parts of it yet, but it's God, yeah, what, what yeah. a whole. I it's such a great series. Um, it is. It is, and I think I think the the Swedish films get progressively better. Like I I think that the as third the books one is did. just stellar. Yeah. Yeah. That surprises me. Too. I'm very excited to hear. So I'm, it's making me read. Knowing your recommendations, making me read these very quickly uh, oh, because well, I, right. I want to see them. them. I want to. I'm practically watching. I'm watching five minute segments as I finish each chapter. I just turn on the movie <laughs> for just a few minutes. A terrible way to do that. Nice, um, nice. I have, but, uh, hey, I, I I watched one other film which actually oh. I think ties in nicely with what we're going to talk about tonight. Okay. Um, which I don't know. Did you have something else to say before I throw this one in? There? I did, but I want you to throw this one in anyway. Go ahead. Uh, one other film that I watched while I was um, feeling miserable and and uh, and uh, um, coughing everywhere, um, all the president's men. Oh yeah. Did one you did you watch that because of the films. movie? Did you watch I it because did. of this? Yeah. I well, I mean, I didn't pick it because I was like, I have to watch this because um, you know it's it's one of David Fincher's favorite films they used it as a reference all that sort of stuff it was more just watching that newsroom so much made me feel like watching um, the newsroom and all the president's men and watching these other obsessed men so I don't know was, I don't know it just yeah. it just felt like the right movie to watch absolutely uh, yeah. it was really good I, I want to jump into the uh, movie but I have to do some uh, official uh, I have some house cleaning some official oh. stuff I, uh, you know, I, I said last week that we're, uh, uh, and I am continuing uh, our, uh, our mission to get people to discover us on Stitcher Smart Radio. Mm-hmm. Have you checked out? Did you ever check out Stitcher? Did you check? Yeah, it, out? it looks it looks like a, a pretty um, stellar site. It's an awesome service. I, uh, you know, uh, I have been playing with it more and more. It is it is relatively new to me. For those who don't know, you can head over to Stitcher.com or go to your favorite app store on your uh, iPhone, iPad, Android phone, Kindle Fire, uh, and more, and get the Stitcher app. Uh, it is on-demand uh, news and podcast uh, internet radio, and it's fantastic. Uh, you've got to go get it, and then you just search for either movies we like or Rash Pixel, and and movies we like will come we like will come up, and just add it to your favorites, and then the the newest episodes just automatically show up. Uh, Stitcher uh, Smart Radio, they have they are um, you know if you have a Ford or GM, a newer Ford or GM, Stitcher is built in. It's coming in more and more devices all the time, and it's a great way uh, to keep up with. Uh, certainly with our show and uh, and with a lot of great podcast all the all the top tier uh, internet broadcasters are in stitcher now it's got 5,000 shows and growing and so uh, definitely check it out of course you can also check us out in iTunes uh, if you're listening to this on the website head over to iTunes too and and uh, you know uh, we really appreciate any uh, any comment you could make if you're an iTunes subscriber to to recommend the show to others and give us a rating there uh, ideally a good one uh, if you, you know, your mom, <laughs> like your mother said, uh, if you don't have anything nice to say, really 
don't say anything at all. But uh, but if you have something nice to say, share it with the world. She said. Um, wow, is that is that how your mother said that it? That was my mother. My mother said that to me. She says, I, I, Peter, <laughs> Peter, you don't have anything nice to say. And so I didn't. Uh, but now I encourage you to do so. Rate it. It helps others. Your rating helps others discover the show and uh, and uh, hear about all this great David Fincher stuff that we're talking about. I think that's it. Oh, and while we're at it, you might as well follow The Movie Monkey on Twitter. That's Andy. Mm. Uh, and you could follow me. Uh, I'm just uh, just Pete Wright. That is really just uh, Pete Wright. Right. You're not, I'm not just Pete Wright. I'm not just Pete Wright, although now I should <laughs> register that. That you should, you so, should. It's it's great. Pete Wright uh, on the Twitter, so you can find us there. Now let us uh, let us get on with the show. I want to ask you a question about this show, about okay. this about not just about this movie, but about what we are doing here. So we are now we're on the uh, really on still on the the on the the early middle of our Benjamin Button style David Fincher movie fest. Mm-hmm. Right, so we're 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 going through David Fincher's movies in reverse, correct. And I am wondering now if that was a good idea. I actually really like it. Okay, tell me why. It it's uh, well because one we've seen all the films, so we we know what's coming. Uh, I mean, what his earlier films were. And by doing it backward, it gives us kind of a sense as to um, where he went from uh, from what we're talking about now. Like, for instance, tonight we're talking about Zodiac, which we can uh, we've already kind of discussed what he's done since, and we we've looked at the tools that he's used. And now, as we're delving into into his past, we can start kind of looking at well, this is this could be kind of the precursor to what he ended up doing in his later films. Oh, I think that's exactly. Okay, you're exactly right. I think you're I don't I there's no could about it to me. I mean, this this it and that that's sort of what gets it gets to me. Like I'm wondering, are you learning anything as you think critically about Fincher's career now in reverse? Uh are you are you coming in any to any sort of new realizations that you hadn't any new connections that you hadn't made for yourself uh, before? As as a film theorist, uh, as far as his films, well, I, I'm just looking at them and, and I'm watching the the path he's taken, and I'm really seeing the trends that he's kind of um, traveled in his stories that seem to be the ones that, um, I mean, the films that he's ended up making. Um, you know, he really so far the films really have a lot to do with uh, people who are really obsessed with something um, yeah. or yeah. or kind of lonely people who are kind of disconnected from the world around them. Those seem to be kind of the two stories that uh, that draw Fincher in and uh, and those are the stories that he likes to tell or you know the ones that he ends up getting financed to tell. Well, okay, so I uh, all right, then I uh, I cede the point. I agree with you. I mean, I am I am certainly learning something going backward in time here. Um, it it just makes it difficult. I'm finding myself challenged to talk about the progression of Fincher maturing as a filmmaker when uh, I, I it, Zodiac not so much, but I can feel the next series the next sort of the, the sort of first half of his his major motion picture career i'm going to be struggling to say some some of those words uh and so i'm i'm uh, anyway it's hard to see growth when you're going backwards that's so it's just it's dumb to even say that out loud like means <laughs> and it's just words so let's talk about uh let's first can we run the numbers of this movie first and i uh, yeah, uh, this movie didn't do well. <laughs> it was a, yeah, it was struggled, a bomb. Struggled. It, yeah, I think they say it. It pretty much uh, was. A, um, I guess they would say a financial failure. It um, in North America, it ended up grossing about. Uh, what did it gross in North America? Let me find the thing. 
um, $33 million. Which is and, just under half of what it cost, right? It cost about yeah. 60 some odd million, $65 million, something like that. Uh, I'm looking at the number here uh, on the numbers. They are estimating the production budget $85 million. Okay. I've, I see it also at $75 million. So somewhere in there, but yet regardless, yeah. right. less than half of what it uh, costs to make. Internationally, they're estimating about $50 million. So worldwide, you know, it still didn't even make its money back. And that's just a production budget. That's not even the marketing bu- budget. Right. DVD sales certainly helped. Uh, domestically, the estimates are $21 million. Um, but even then, that's not going to make back its uh, the cost in advertising and everything else. So, this movie was made at a loss, and yet, uh, in general, critical reviews were positive. Very positive. Uh, you know, it appeared on. You know, I'd say at least a several dozen critics' top ten lists of. Um, uh, films of the year in 2007 it did really really well critically and the people who saw it i think really connected with it and felt that it was a uh, a fantastic film i haven't talked to anybody who's seen it who didn't like it i know there are some critics who didn't and obviously you know there probably are people out there who saw it and didn't like it but uh, well but, a, you know you hear this movie um and, and I so here is a question that gets back to what I was talking about just a second ago about the sort of progression of David Fincher. I have heard just in reading the sort of reviews and preparing for this conversation that uh, many uh, reviewers see this as Fincher's masterpiece that has yet to be beat. Yeah. Uh, what do you well, say to that? You know, as as we're watching his films backward, um. It's funny because I I keep like when we watch Social Network I declared that as the thus far the pinnacle of his career, and then we watched Benjamin Button and I'm like, man, that's a good film. <laughs> that might be one of my favorites of his. And then we watched and then Zodiac. We watched Zodiac and I'm like, oh man, clearly that's this, the best. <laughs> that's that's obviously the best. What was I saying? It's funny because um, yeah, watching them this way, and I know I'll be saying that all the way up to seven. Yeah, because uh, I just I, I love all of them. It's um, it's a stellar, stellar film. And yes, there are a lot of people who say that this was uh, kind of the peak of his career. And I think a lot of that has to do with uh, I, I my sense is David Fincher is a director who many people feel has a very flashy um, style. And he always I shouldn't say flashy, but. Um, does a lot of, we'll say, kind of very unique technical tricks in his films. Um, they uh, they come uh, come across kind of, you know, uh, I, I guess I could say flashy. They do they do have some flash to them, but this one it felt very restrained, very um, kind of just very methodical in the telling of a of very you know, methodical story about police and newspaper people trying to track down a serial killer. Okay, so uh, we should we should step back and and talk just a little bit about the genesis of the movie. Um, uh, film is uh, it, it is Zodiac. It is based on it is the procedural film that that documents the the tracking of the Zodiac killer in this throughout the sixties and seventies, uh, and actually progresses what is the overall time uh, scope of time it's opens july 4th 1969 mm-hmm. uh and, and the last last scene is in the 91 eight, right no it's it, yes yeah, 90, 90, uh, 91 91 in the, in the airport uh and and so 90 69 to 91 and uh, so it covers a long scope uh and it, the material comes from uh, the book Zodiac uh, and Zodiac Unmasked by Robert Graysmith, uh, who is the title character, or not title character, who is the, <laughs> the protagonist of the film played by Jake Gyllenhaal. 
Uh, right. Uh, and uh, the cast is filled out by uh, the uh, fantastic Robert Downey Jr. as reporter Paul Avery for the San Francisco Chronicle, um, who I think does a just a fantastic job. Mark Ruffalo plays the uh, the detective Dave Toskey, uh, and uh, let's see, Bill Armstrong played by Anthony Edwards from uh, ER fame. Uh, and um, our old pal Brian Cox, uh, Brian Cox, who's in it again as Melvin the uh, as a Melvin Belli, the uh, famed attorney, and uh, and I mean the cast is is really impeccable. They do a great job. I think uh, you know the real stand. Uh, while while everyone I think in here is is really really good. Oh, uh, all the way down to like you know small small supporting roles. Yeah. Uh, it's it's unbelievable how well cast this is. Absolutely, uh, you know the the I don't even know what you call them all the all the the various uh, potential Zodiac killers uh, from John Carroll Lynch uh, to uh, let's see who uh, who are the who's the oh 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 uh, it's going to make me insane because I actually know the guy and. Uh, uh, it's uh, we see he's in one scene. He's the other. Um, he's uh, the Rod, Roger Rabbit. Uh, what's his name? Oh, Charles Fleischer. Charles Fleischer. Okay, yeah. I got a Charles Fleischer story. I in my book after in my book that is the scariest scene in the film. The Charles Fleischer. It scene. is. It's very creepy. He's um, and it's interesting listening to uh, you know the filmmakers talk about it. It's it's. Uh, Kind of the most uh, con, uh, contested film in the, or scene in the film, because it's, it's the uh, most. Con- it, well, my theory. I don't know. I haven't seen what you've, you're about to say, but I would imagine it's contested for me because it's the most, in many ways, conventional kind of scare scene in right. the film. That's exactly it. I think some of the the people involved in the film making process felt this was a a very you know, big red herring that they were chasing down here and they used it purely to throw a nice scare in, uh, in the last, uh, yeah. last act of the film. You know, I, I think that, uh, certainly is true, but at the same time, I think it is a great scene and it just creeps me out to no end. When he pulls the light switch and the lights go out in that basement, it is, uh, man, that is that's a that's spooky and and uh, it was played very very well. So uh, everyone in here is uh, does a fantastic job. The thing about this movie, uh, and I, uh, the the thing about this movie, I think that that flummoxes people who aren't looking at it critically, who just watch it, mm-hmm. uh, is that it's a movie that opens heavy. You get three not not terribly gruesome murders pretty early in the film, and then it's a procedural. All the yeah. way to the end, uh, right. it, it's almost where I, you know. As I think back to the to the the prior uh, Fincher films that we have not yet reviewed <laughs> chron- chron- chronologically, this is the right. film where it almost seems like Fincher fell in love with making paperwork sexy because he I did it again yeah. for the rest of the, <laughs> the rest of the movies he's done after <laughs> this. Right, exactly. Yeah, you're you're very true. Uh, that's that's pretty funny. And I think he did. I think he made it. Um, I think a lot of that had to do with feeling obligated to be honest with this story. You know, he wanted to make it feel accurate to all of the police and reporters who had been involved in this. And in so doing, uh, you know, it turned into a very kind of crisp, clean way to shoot it. And it just it felt very, uh, very streamlined and honest i think yeah i think so too i think he really captured this um the spirit of bureaucracy and it's yeah. that's one of those interesting lessons that comes out of this otherwise this thriller uh is that um you know the struggle that these main characters over the course of 20 years the struggle that these main characters go through to work together to find these answers Mm-hmm. Uh, dealing with uh, obstructionism and and the fact that these professional detectives were you know struggling for so many years and ultimately the guy who got closest was a cartoonist. Yeah, which is just it's such a fascinating story that this is the person who was so obsessed with finding the answer to this story right. that I mean he you know really 
truly kind of destroyed his own marriage and uh, and took that obsession to to find the truth uh, whether it was prosecutable or not and get it out there into the world well that's a really good point so we're talking about robert graysmith jake gyllenhaal playing robert graysmith's character and the fact that it opens really early in in uh, graysmith's uh, career at the san francisco chronicle as a as a cartoonist and um you watch his obsession grow in such a metered, a perfectly metered and natural way uh, over the course of the story that by the time you really see Graysmith kind of lose it, I mean, really, I mean, he's just, you feel he just has come off the rails at the end uh, in that that scene, just talking to his wife where she asks, when will this be over? Mm-hmm. And he says, when I look in his eyes and I know that it's. Yeah. And I think, you know, that that you bring up a a great scene because I think another moment that strikes me as just so completely honest is, uh, and his wife played by um, Chloe Sevigny, who normally I'm not a fan of, but I swear she's just so good in this. When he looks at her and he says, don't let the kids see me like this. Yeah. And it's just, you know, he's he's not so far gone that he's um, you know, like, you know, in his underwear drawing, you know, spirals on the wall or anything crazy like that. But he he knows he's kind of past a point of of you know, what the general public would call um, you know, sane and normal. And uh Yet he willingly stays on that side because he knows that, you know, he has to push and find this thing. Because it's no longer about right or wrong. Yeah. That's it's about looking in his that's eyes. That level, yeah, looking yeah. in his eyes. That's fantastic. And that talk about a great scene when he goes into that Ace Hardware and goes up to Arthur Lee Allen, played, oh, so creepily by John Carroll Lynch, mm-hmm. which is funny because he's so lovable in Fargo. And then here he is just one of the creepiest, creepiest roles ever. Oh, the guy has made, he's, he really, uh, he's a fantastic character actor. Uh, and you're absolutely right. He's just really creepy. I, I don't want to derail you, but I want to talk about how they, uh, how they actually sort of constructed the Zodiac killer mm. himself. Sure. Uh, Zodiac is, because the the Zodiac, uh, and I think sort of artfully so, the Zodiac killer that we see actually murdering people in the first three mm-hmm. scenes is none of the actual um, folks that that we are led to believe is the final prosecutable Zodiac. Right. Uh, the the Zodiac Zodiac one, two, and three, uh, played by Richmond Arquette. Uh, is the guy that you actually see holding the gun and and the knife and stabbing folks and making the phone calls, right? And he has been in it looks like other uh, other Fincher films. He was in <laughs> he was in Seven. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was in Fight Club. He was in uh, he was in this one, and he was also in uh, Benjamin Button. Uh, and I think that's it. Uh, Anyway, so here's a minor character actor who is the Zodiac Killer, um, plays the part of the Zodiac Killer in all the uh, all the key scenes. Um, well, not all of the key scenes. They actually have a couple different actors. Yeah, I guess play, that's true. Um, yeah. uh, play the Zodiac you know, the two suspects. and three. Yeah. What I think is interesting about that is Fincher wanted the people playing the 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 zodiac who is actually doing the killing to match the police descriptions that were actually given and those were these were also the other two guys just so i don't lose it bob stevenson and john lacy mm-hmm. uh so those i think are the three murderer actual murderers in the movie well, i don't think i'm missing anybody no i think it's just those three and those uh, were of, also the faces that were at the end of the movie when in 1991, when they sit down at the airport and they sit down with the uh, the survivor in the airport and say, pick out the guy. Those were the other two other faces, some of the other faces in there. Huh, interesting. Uh, in the pictures. Uh, so go ahead. What were you going to say? No, I was just, I, I think it's really interesting that uh, they chose to like 
essentially honor what people had given to the police that the police put down in their police reports to play the Zodiac so that if the police report said, you know, he was six foot 10, uh, crew cut glasses, heavy set, that's who they would, that body type is who they would get to play the Zodiac for that scene. If it said he was only, you know, uh, did I say six foot 10? <laughs> that's a big that's, guy. That's a really that's tall a big guy. dude. <laughs> he would be and, memorable. Uh, and then on the other side, if he's only three foot nine, then they would cast, cast the three foot nine <laughs> guy to play him. <laughs> now, if his whole body is covered in this thick, bushy brown hair, then they would get a Yeti. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. You can tell the. They uh, really capture the whole. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, man. You were saying? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think I got that one covered. <laughs> All right. So you're right. What do you yeah. so? Uh, what do you think of this? Because uh, usually, when you see a serial killer murder, when you where you know there's a MacGuffin after there out there, you gotta try and track it down. That you you really are, uh, you're trying. Like you, I remember the first time I saw. I actually got this movie home, and I didn't know that there were multiple people uh, playing the Zodiac killer. I went back and and actually you know watched it frame by frame to see if I could figure out who it was. That doesn't work. It doesn't work in this movie. It doesn't work in this one. No doesn't really beautiful that was uh, clever there's a lot of cleverness in there well you know and i think um because of that and because of the fact that the film stays so true to the reality of what happened which is to this day we still don't know who the zodiac killer was yes some people think it was arthur lee allen but some of the people out there don't think it was him you know they feel that the uh, the dna test that they did on one of the envelopes that uh, didn't match his uh, dna proves that it wasn't him there's a there's still so many theories and i think the fact that they so meticulously wanted to honor this case and what actually happened so hence the film feels very unfinished when it ends uh, i think that is what uh, to some degree, kind of bothered people when they went expecting to watch, you know, a serial killer movie and have that um, catharsis. It, because that, in it, so many ways, this was not a serial killer movie. Right, right. That's the issue. This was not a serial killer movie. No, and I think what people miss is the moment where, I, I guess you could call it the the climactic resolution of the film. And for me, I felt completely satisfied when I watched this movie is the moment that I was talking about earlier when Graysmith goes into the Ace Hardware where Arthur Lee Allen works. He looks him in the eye just like he said that's what he wanted to do. And even though he can't prosecute, even though he's not even a cop, he looks in his eye. Arthur Lee Allen looks at him, gives him that just creepy look, and he knows and I think yeah. for me, that was the resolution of the film. I didn't need to find out if he really did it or not, because that wasn't what the film was trying to get to. Well, and, you know, I think they on that point, I think they really could have uh, they could have stopped the movie right there. You know, I mean, I, that could have been enough uh, to be true to the story. They did go in in 91 and they did a uh, for the first time they were able to show the um, uh, to the. Uh, uh, the lineup of of suspect images to the first or the second those were right the second the the chronologically the second uh attack he survived mike uh was it mike majo uh, mike majo right uh mike majo uh played terrifically by jimmy simpson in this very brief bit but i am a big fan of this dude uh from is always sunny in Philadelphia. Oh, right. That's what he's from. He's yeah. fantastic. He's just great. And um, so he actually points out, he says, with uh, on an 8 out of 10 uh, confidence level, uh, he says, this is, it's Arthur Lee, uh, and uh, this is the guy who shot me. Uh, and then Arthur Lee uh, dies of a heart attack. Yeah. Uh, and they are never able to bring him in for final questioning arthur lee allen and so that the the story really sort of ends there uh and yet there are still people out there who believe the zodiac killer uh is still around the case is actually still open in three counties apparently 
Yeah, it's a it's it's one that uh, I think people will be hard pressed to find a resolution yeah. to. So tell me uh, how you feel about Mark Ruffalo. Oh, he's just I mean, he's fantastic. I I think this is uh, some of his best work, actually. He was so good as as Toski, the the uh, frustration he put in the role, um, the obsession, the uh, but all, at the same time the the detective, I guess I would call it maybe that coolness that he has, the uh, the respect he has for the procedure. You know, it was just it was spot on. He was he was fantastic. The thing about this movie, and you know, he's been in a ton of movies like this is a guy who who became successful overnight over the course of you know 20 years he has been acting since uh he's been in movies since 90 his first movie is 1992 and uh he so the the film itself right the zodiac killer uh the the story itself was also the uh uh uh, premise for the dirty harry movie Right, right. The Scorpio yeah. killer, and Toski, the real life Toski, was the model for Dirty Harry. Right, right. So, I, knowing that going into Zodiac, you sort of expect Dave Toski to be the Dirty Harry guy. Yeah. Uh, but man, Ruffalo does not does not play him that way. No, he really doesn't. He is as subtle and subdued. Uh, and and uh, just sort of quietly, uh, well, he's sort of just quietly, frustratingly masculine, mm-hmm. uh, but not overtly, uh, you know, mannish. Does that make sense? I think he's so. He's not a bully. He's not a bully. Yeah. He is just, uh, he's right. just he very human. He yeah. He's not running down the street tackling, no. uh, you know, crooks. No, and you don't necessarily even get the feeling that he really wants to. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's it's his job. He he does his work. It's a very, you know, in a sense, this does kind of, the detectives in this have that same sense in Seven, I feel, especially Morgan Freeman, really gives it that procedural sense. You know, well, we do this, you know, we, 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 look for the evidence we try to figure something out mm-hmm. you know nine times out of ten we don't catch the guy how do you so how would you compare these two movies seven and uh and zodiac well i mean obviously they're both serial killer uh, movies about a serial killer yet they're drastically different in the sense that you know the the crux of the story in seven is the serial killer movie and the uh much more of a a you know, cop thriller, I would say, you know, um, whereas this one, like we already kind of said, it's, it's very much more a police procedural. It follows these guys as they try to solve a crime that we know doesn't actually get solved. It's, I I find it really interesting that we have (laughs) Zodiac, which is sort of a, uh, um, more, well, I, and maybe it's the way he treats fictionalized uh, material, you know, uh, versus nonfiction. Uh, but it, it is essentially a more mature kind of grown-up retelling of Seven, which is more of the sort of gruesome mm-hmm. slasher um, thriller. Uh, and then we get uh, a Curious Case of Benjamin Button, which is sort of a grown-up remake of Forrest Gump. Obviously, he didn't make Forrest Gump. Uh uh, but, but Eric it, Roth, though. Uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, you get the sense that he's, uh, I, I almost feel like, and this is how I choose to think about David Fincher, that he's writing the wrongs of cinema past. <laughs> <laughs> he's kind of my hero. <laughs> Are you saying that Seven and Forrest Gump were cinema wrongs? Not at all. And in fact, I, <laughs> I, I look forward to watching Seven again. It's been it's been years since I've seen it. But it's I still remember it, even after thinking about, you know, all the other uh, more recent movies, I still remember it as my favorite of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm really looking forward to watching it. Yeah, it's, it's uh, a stellar film. The, um, oh, what was I going to say? You, you took me on a path and I just yeah, lost sorry it. sorry about that. That's okay. 
All right. You know what? You, I, I also, is, I just want to talk about, I, you, go, go ahead. You do your, <laughs> I just want to make, this is my footnote. I want to hear you talk about settings uh, and as such special effects. That's as okay. a teaser. So you're going to need to talk about that. And uh, then I forgot the second one. So I'll get back well, to that one. I'll, I will jump on that, which actually ties very well into what I was going to talk about. Okay. So it all, it all came full circle. Oh, but cameras, the, cameras. Yeah. Oh, go. sure. All right, you go. But but before I do, I just I want to um, point out a very kind of peculiar note. Uh, Philip Baker Hall, who's a fantastic actor that I've loved forever, um, he's in this. He plays the handwriting analyst Sherwood Morrill. Um, and he's he's, he's a he's very so good. He's so great good. guy. He's great. Um, he was also in a movie that came out the year before. Uh, 2006 called the zodiac um, based on a true story which is a really really poorly received movie that was <laughs> quote based on the true story of the zodiac it actually revolved around um more just like the i think specifically the first two crimes that happen up in vallejo but philip baker hall is actually the uh Vallejo police chief in that film. So I think it's funny that he ended up in both of the Zodiac films. I remember seeing the trailers for these and I, it was one of those things where it, it possibly even was like back to back trailers, which would have been very funny if I saw that in a theater that they put them back to back, um, seeing both of these Zodiac trailers. And I'm like, what is going on with the Zodiac right now? There's all these Zodiac movies and, uh, and he's in both he's of them. He's in and both I, of them. That's too funny. That's so funny. He's, uh, uh, he's, you know, I'm just, the guy see, turns, he's one of those guys who turns up in everything. Uh, he's, you'll see yeah. him, you see him now on, uh, on Modern Family. Not yeah. every week, but he's the crotchety, angry old neighbor. He pops in every now and he's then. The, on yeah, he's, oxygen, he's fantastic. He's been, he's been in the business since yeah. the 70s. I mean, he's just yeah. fantastic. Uh, uh, okay, so, so go. Anyway, that was yeah. my random little note. So, um, settings and visual effects. And this ties into what I wanted to talk about, um, which is um, another reason I think that David Fincher really wanted, and I shouldn't say I think, I mean, he specifically has said this, he really wanted to be true to this story is he grew up in the San Francisco area and it was his home and he remembers all of this stuff happening when he was a kid. And um, because of that, he really, you know, after he read the initial um, draft of the script that uh, James Vanderbilt had written. Um, and there was a lot more embellishing in that version. And, and, you know, Fincher decided to tell the story, but he really wanted to make it as true as possible to what really happened because he didn't want to turn it into a movie that was essentially, you know, pointing its finger at somebody, uh, especially posthumously, who couldn't defend himself if he if Arthur Lee Allen did happen to actually be innocent. So, I mean, David Fincher, James Vanderbilt, the screenwriter, and uh, um, one of the producers, Brad Fisher, literally went out and tracked down like all the witnesses, family members, um, you know, people related to the suspects, all of the investigators, all of the people at the um, at the uh, Chronicle, the two surviving victims, like anyone who was involved, they actually went out and did interviews with all these people to really try to get uh, a sense as to what really happened. And that's the story that they set out to tell, which I think is amazing that filmmakers really tried. I mean, it's almost a documentary approach that they took to telling this story. The, now, they, they spent, uh, did you, did, uh, maybe I blacked out. I mean, they they spent <laughs> almost a year doing this i mean uh, you can't really underscore that point enough just how deep they got into the investigation itself right it's it's uh uh something just popped up on my computer hold on uh is it, it's really is it about the, the zodiac killer is it uh, it's an email with heavy breathing that's right it's creepy oh uh, wow i'm gonna start was... crank calling you at night yeah Anything? Thanks, man. Are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. It's like, yeah, cookies started trying to open up on my thing. 
I don't know. Anyway, weird randomness that uh, doesn't relate to this at all. So, so, uh, so San Francisco. Mm-hmm. So, so jumping back into trying to make it as honest and true as possible, uh, Fincher wanted to recreate the city that way as well. And just as an example, the intersection of Washington and Cherry, where the taxi driver gets killed. They went to that actual intersection and they looked at it and they were trying to negotiate with the city of San Francisco to film there. And it was getting very complicated. The HOA didn't want them filming there after dark. And it was just, it was just turning into a nightmare. And, and it didn't even look the same anymore. And Fincher is just like, you know what? Let's just blue screen it on a stage. We'll recreate the corner and do it all digitally. And we can have it exactly as it was back then. And so that's what they did. They shot it on a on a blue screen stage with, you know, the actors and some vehicles. And then they basically put all the houses and everything in digitally, even some of the vehicles, um, because they wanted to really make it look like it did back then. I mean, it was it was amazing work that they did in this film to to recreate San Francisco in the 60s, 70s, 80s. It is um you know, one of the little exercises that's kind of fun uh, is to, you if you have the DVD and you haven't done this yet, and, you know, maybe this is in the making of stuff. I didn't, I haven't seen it. But you in the uh, opening credit sequence, mm-hmm. there's a long fly-in uh, over the, uh, or in toward the city, over the ocean, in toward San Francisco of 1969. Right. And you can go into Google image search and look, just do a search for port of San Francisco images Mm -hmm. and look at what they actually did uh, to create the city of 1969 with no Transamerica building with some highways that had been destroyed in the earthquake to come later with uh, buildings that were under construction. I mean, they deconstructed San Francisco in such an incredible way. Yeah. Uh, It's uh and and really beautifully, it goes oh, back to yeah. what we were saying last week about uh, James Cameron, uh, you know, where technology finally catches up to, uh, you know, to the stories we really want to tell. Uh, we're not using this brilliant technology, these incredible 3D mats to create, you know, this this technology to create fanciful aliens. We're doing it to create. Uh, to create a set that we never mm-hmm. would have done before. And it, this is a great example of doing that in a very uh, artful and impactful way. Oh, very true. I mean, it's it's stunning. And this, you know, I, I mean, this actually even harkens back to like when Ron Howard did Apollo 13 back in um, 95. Right. Um, it's using special effects and visual effects to enhance the story and make it the story that you want to tell um, as accurately as possible without feeling like you have to flash your effects at everybody. Right. And it's, it's so flawless. I would bet that the majority of people who watch this film would never even have a clue that the Washington and Cherry street corner is completely digitally created. Right. Or that that flyover of San Francisco is digitally created. Um, you know, or or the shot from the top of the Golden Gate Bridge, as you know, as wonderful as a shot as it is. It, you know, you're talking about told... the actual, even the movie poster. Well, yeah, the movie poster, which yeah, I think they ended up um, the, is the same company that did the shot right. that did the movie poster. But um, yeah, that that just amazing shot as the camera tilts down to the bridge and you see. Yeah, um, Gray Smith's little orange car crossing the bridge as he heads north up to Vallejo. I mean, it's just it's beautiful. It is beautiful. It is really yeah. beautiful. Uh, now, the cameras. We had talked a little bit about this that that this movie was the first one that he did mostly digitally. Is that? Yeah, this was the first. Um, I think this was actually the first film period that used the Vipers. It was. Um, not a hundred percent digital. Um, they did do some some uh, film work for the the slow motion murder scenes, yeah. right? They use high high speed film cameras to actually film those, but virtually the rest of it was all shot digitally with the Vipers. 
they're amazing cameras. Um, they they really are as far as what you can get with the light that you have, and they really um, worked to do that. He and and his uh, his DP on this one was Harry Savitas, who he worked with on um, what did he work with on Harry on uh, Fight Club and um, the opening credits of Seven, right. Oh, not not no. Fight Club. Sorry, the game. Uh, the game, yeah. But he, um, like for example, the basement scene, which we already talked about. That scene was basically lit with two, you know, practicals, uh, practical light bulbs just hanging from the yeah. ceiling. In scene, practical light bulbs, like that's right. That, right. You, just basement light. Yeah, exactly. And it's gorgeous, and it's creepy, and it's perfect. Yeah, it really is. Um, let's see to other technical achievements, uh, awards, uh, let's, did this, uh, this win anything? It didn't get nominated for anything, uh, at least at the Oscars. This, you know, it's one of those films. It came out in March. Um, unfortunately it came out the same weekend as wild hogs. So, uh, which, which was. vastly outpaced <laughs> Zodiac. It, it did, and then and then the a week later, three hundred open, and uh, we all know that you know three hundred made just a record amount of yeah. money, and so it honestly just didn't even have a chance when it came out, and you know by the time the award season rolled around, it was uh, largely forgotten. Uh, James Vanderbilt was nominated for best adapted screenplay by the Writers Guild. And uh, a couple other, it looks like the Chicago Film Critics Association and the Satellite Awards, but that's it. That's sad. That is, you know, a not sad yeah, thing. not even visual effects. You know, it's it's really well, and especially when you compare it to a film like Three Hundred, which made its name by doing telling a gigantic story with no restraint whatsoever, compared to Zodiac, which tells a, a small story with enormous restraint, uh, mm-hmm. and does so in a way that is just polished and elegant. Uh, it's a real shame that the, you know, but it, this is not a movie that screams, look at me, look at me. Not award wise. You're right. It's, um, it isn't, which, um, I, I still say it's a shame. It's, uh, such a gorgeous film. It's, um, it is the haunting. It's, it's, it's just haunting, but man, is it just a gorgeous film? It it is the film when I you know I've been talking to folks about that that we're doing the the, the Fincher Fest and uh, you know this is the film that most of the people I've been talking to haven't seen and um, you know I think just in you know for my perspective this is this is the one not to miss um, uh, you know you yeah. got to see them all because they're all fantastic but but this one really. Um, I think this is where uh, Fincher really nails restraint. I mean, he nails restraint. Yeah. He really, um, well, and he said after Panic Room, which, you know, we'll talk about next week, um, which was a a technical bear to make. It was just, it was really off the wall as far as what they did in that film to, to accomplish what they did. Um, he, he actually said this was the first film that he did where he, he didn't storyboard anything. He went in kind of saying, okay, I just want to, you know, just kind of go in very, uh, go into the scene and I just want to, you know, kind of work through it and figure it out and, and do it, you know, in a not so, um, complicated way but just do it in a straightforward way that tells the story and i mean he still he still has some some wonderful moments in there it's not just you know it's not to the point where it's like clint eastwood's sparse camera uh, filmmaking uh which you know there's nothing wrong with that but it uh, it still definitely feels fincher but yeah it's it's very restrained the um Gosh, there's a the actor James Lagrosse. Yeah. Uh, you know, he has. Uh, was he the same? I'm just making a connection here because you know I have the movie on in the background, and he's in. A, he's as a uniformed cop in a couple of these scenes. 
Yeah. I don't know the story. What did scenes. I miss? He's in two scenes. He's in one scene where he says, uh, he's standing there talking to the, the Vallejo guy and he says, what's that guy doing? Well, he thinks he can, he thinks he can solve this thing on his own. Yeah, and LaGrosse, the unit, he says, good for him. And it's a really nice moment. And I right. didn't make the connection that he is the older guy who comes back and actually shows the lineup footage to, uh, uh right. To Majot. Right. At the end. Yeah. That's him. Yeah, it's That's, uh it's it's nice. Yeah, it's nice. I always think of for, with James LaGrosse, the only role I I don't know why this is the only thing I ever picture him in cuz he's been in dozens of films. But yeah. Living in Oblivion is the film that I always think of with James LaGrosse. Why uh, is that? Ever, it's just such a funny role. Did you ever see that movie? No. It's about a low budget um filmmaker making a movie. And huh. James LaGrosse plays this <laughs> just incredibly um, – he's like the big name actor <laughs> in the film. And he's he's just totally egomaniacal and, and he's just one of those people who – he plays like – he's such a nice actor but at the same time he's constantly like trying to reblock scenes and essentially like, you know, redirect the film for the director as it's going. It's so funny. That's funny. Yeah, he's been in a lot of stuff. Um, you know, few, I think, few, gosh, big name movies. He's been in big he's name movies. A, but he's just a very small part yeah, I don't, in a I don't lot of know. big name movies. I couldn't name a film that he's been in where he was a lead. Yeah, no, I can't either. I'm sure he has been, but I don't know. He's been in a ton of movies. He's another one. God. Uh. Yeah, well, yeah. this is uh, this is this is definitely a film to catch, and I'm um, particularly if you are uh, if you have been a fan of other Fincher movies, this is this one really uh, um, uh, really highlights a lot of his his unique talents as a filmmaker. Yeah, it's it's a gorgeous film. It's haunting. It, it definitely has its creepy moments. Um, you know, it's it's very uh, methodical and focused i think and it's just it's a gorgeous film oh you know something else we didn't talk about which i think works so well for this film is uh the score yeah the score is interesting i i think we didn't talk about it because it it, it works really well but it wasn't a um it wasn't epic i mean i think it, they only turned out like 37 minutes of of you know score yeah i mean they weren't even david fincher originally didn't even want score in the film it was going to be purely uh songs from the eras as it progressed from from mm -hmm. the 60s to the 90s um and then ren kleiss his sound mixer of uh, many films as we know said you know there's a couple spots where we could use some music and his favorite uh film score is the conversation uh, francis ford coppola's movie from um 70 Four, which I think is a masterpiece film, which we definitely should talk about mm -hmm. on this show. Um, and David Shire did the music for that film. And it's it's a beautiful, beautiful score and very haunting as well. And so they got David Shire, who for all intents and purposes had essentially kind of retired from, from the business. They got him to come in and uh, compose some music for it. And it's just haunting. It's simple. It's... Um, and man, it's so effective. Yeah, it, and I, I think one of the the gimmick is uh, that the way he uh, the way he actually orchestrated the film, the the score to support each character. They each have their own uh, they each have their own instrument. Mm -hmm. Zodiac is, is discordant strings. Um, I think what is it? Uh, uh, Graysmith Gray is a piano lonely, solo. lonely piano. And Toski's the trumpet, yeah, very yeah. kind of yeah. nice detective stuff. And he did a lot of atonal music, and he has like what they say here. There's, he said, there's twelve signs of the zodiac, and there is a way of using atonal and tonal music. So we use twelve tones, never repeating any of them, but manipulating them. Yeah, it's, it's really, really interesting. It's very I, interesting. do you have do you is it a, is it a score that you listen to? Yeah, I love it. It's, I, when I, I'm when I'm in the mood. 
yeah, it, like that, the conversation when there's a mood or if I'm writing, like it's just great music to have on. It's, mm. I mean, it's, it's haunting music, but I love it. Okay. I'll check it out. Yeah, definitely do. All right. Uh, we are going to move into, let's see what's next. What's next, next is, I guess the midpoint of, of, uh, Fincher's movies is panic room. I look forward to this. I yes. do. I like Jody. You know who was originally playing that role? Tell me. This is should a spoiler. I, spoiler alert. I'll, I'll spoil you. Gina Gershon. I don't know. I'm guessing. Nicole Kidman. Oh, I can see that, actually. She was playing the role and uh, had to drop out after three weeks of shooting huh. because um, she had blown a knee on Moulin Rouge and um and had to um yeah and, and well she'd blown a knee and then uh, her other knee started hurting while they were filming this and and the the set medic or whoever it was that she went and saw said you can still be in the film you just can't go on any stairs and of course this takes <laughs> the place movie like, is on you know, stairs. a five story uh you know townhouse so that's good so she had to drop out and luckily within a week they were able to i think get Jody in so I'll be looking for a detailed analysis in which you compare uh, Jared Leto's portrayal of Junior to Jake Gyllenhaal's portrayal of Graysmith. <laughs> I see those two as uh, completely uh, physically interchangeable, confusingly interchangeable. I confuse them all the time. Oh, that's so, funny. Yeah. That's fun. Jared Leto. Man, where are they now? We need a VH1. Uh, what is that thing? Behind where are they the artists. Now? Where are they now? <laughs> I think it's just called Where Are They Now? Yeah. I'm, what's that thing called? You know, that Where Are They Now show? What's it called? Well, this is a good uh, good chat, man. It's good to, uh, good to catch up with you on this. I look forward to Panic Room uh, next week. Mm -hmm. And uh, and we'll plow on from there. Yeah, we're just uh, slicing right through these films. Slice and dice. Slice mm. and dice. I was trying to give it a little serial killer, you know, Creepiness. Oh, that was, oh, you know, wow. I, sh I didn't even make the connection. Yeah. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today.